Are you ready, Nick? Cool. Let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you that everyone who is in Sunday school today was able to make it here safely. We thank you for the people that are going to be coming to church. We pray for their safety as they're driving here as well. I ask that you be with us today again, as I always ask that you give us discernment as we're looking at these different arguments, as we're looking at information from texts that are sometimes 4,000 years old um, in many respects. So Lord, I ask that you help us to understand that. I, I ask that you help us to navigate the text, that you help us to correctly discern and perceive the things that you have written there. And that we'll take your word for it in regard to everything we encounter. And I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to have the studies that we're able to do, the freedoms that we have in this country. It's unprecedented and it's a blessing. So I ask that you help us to take advantage of that. I pray that you be with us now as well as the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good morning, everybody. This is going to be... Our 20th lesson, <laughs> uh, defending imminence within our rapture study. So just to kind of put us back kind of into the general context of what we're trying to accomplish here, imminence is fairly easy to explain. It's fairly easy to describe. It doesn't take that long to go into the Bible to figure out that Jesus could come back at any moment. It, it's not something that takes... Uh, weeks of bending the text to conform it to our viewpoint. We don't have to do any gymnastics. We just look, we see throughout the New Testament, as we looked, there are many verses that teach that we are to wait for our Savior to come. John 14 verses 1 through 3 says that we are actually waiting for him to come so he can take us to the Father's house. That's pretty specific, um, it doesn't say that he's coming so that he can take us back to the earth so we can escort him to his new kingdom. It doesn't say anything of the kind. It doesn't say whatever mixed or other variant of viewpoint you can infer there. It doesn't say that. It says that we're waiting for him. So to teach eminence isn't very difficult. It doesn't take very long. It's not terrifically uh, in the weeds. I mean, we don't have to stretch anything to get to that viewpoint. However... So many people disagree with imminence. So many people disagree with not, well, I mean, so many people disagree with a rapture, but a lot of people disagree with a pre-tribulational rapture, which is what we teach in this church, because we believe that it is conspicuously biblical. We believe that if you open your Bible, you have no preconceived notions, you read through it, starting in, we'll just say the New Testament, Matthew ch chapter 1, verse 1 all the way through Revelation, we believe that you're going to come away as a pre-millennial, -tri pre pre-tribulational believer, as far as eschatology is concerned, as far as the future is concerned. However, there are a lot of people with a lot of viewpoints that would be contrary to ours. Now, we could just say they're unbiblical. Why would we even take the time to go through why we think they're wrong? We, we could go into a lot of detail and just brush them off. We could just say we don't even care. But the test of a viewpoint isn't whether or not you can produce a, a viewpoint biblically, unfortunately, at this point in time. I think we've done that sufficiently. I think we've done it more than sufficiently. The test of the validity of a viewpoint is, can you actually stand the test of the arguments? 
can you look at these arguments and be able to say, yes, these don't negate what we believe is a biblical viewpoint on this particular subject? That's what we're looking at right now. We're trying to be intellectually honest when we're looking at other people's viewpoints just to demonstrate that they don't really stand the test of Scripture. Now, we've made it through several of those viewpoints against imminence in general. These are general arguments, which then gets us to the one that I have in bold lettering, which is the argument that God isn't going to exempt the church from something the rest of the world and Israel are going to have to go through. Now, we again, went into the basic building blocks of the argument. We saw exactly how they come up to that viewpoint. Now, there are a lot of things that we could tackle within their, I call it the reformed argument, um, because a lot of covenant theologians, particularly on the reform side, tend to share this particular viewpoint. There are a lot of things that we could tackle here, but the biggest problem, if, if you want to call it a problem, or the biggest core issue in this particular, what we would call an invalid argument, is that they don't differentiate between the church and Israel, which is pretty common amongst covenant theology in general. Um, You can't tell everybody in your church that they're under the Mosaic law unless you blend the lines between Israel and the church, um, which is largely what they end up trying to do in a lot of churches. Now, they they don't say that you're under... All of the Mosaic law, they say you're under the Ten Commandments. And then they say, because of this, because you could fast forward their arguments eventually when they get to the New Testament concerning the rapture, they usually tend to be on the, well, the rapture isn't going to happen before the tribulational period because why would we be exempt from something that Israel's going to have to go through? We are Israel, right? So they make those false arguments that we would vehemently disagree with to try to push that point. That being said, even though it might seem obscure, if you've been in like pre-millennial, pre-tribulational believing, Bible-believing churches your entire life, this might seem like it's out of left field. This might seem like something that you would never encounter. But this is, this is very prominent in certain circles, especially if you float around uh, reform circles. If you, I, I don't want recommend it, but if you go to Europe you listen to a lot of uh, seminarians down there, you're going to actually encounter this a lot more often. Like uh, N.T. Wright, a a lot of the people, plenty of Bible-believing Christians, unfortunately, follow deeply. And I'm not just bashing N.T. Wright for fun. Um, He would blend these lines. He's one example of somebody that a lot of people look up to that would actually push this. So I'm just trying to give you the Um, understanding of this is something that a lot of people believe in. So it's important for us to understand at a base level how we would be able to interact with this argument. I mean, that's a very wordy way of saying it's a valid argument. But we don't agree with it, and we believe it's false. So how would we interact with this argument? Well, the first thing we do is say that the church and Israel are two distinct entities. Well, how would we do that? Well, to do that, we have to look at them, look at why they were made, what they were made to do, and what are their promises concerning the past, present, and future? And do they have any specific promises related to the tribulational period? Because that's really the core of the issue. Now, to understand who Israel is, 
you need to understand where she came from. And so that's what we spent a lot of time looking at. We looked, and I say a lot of time, we made a summary of where Israel has come from, specifically starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and looking at the unconditional promises made to them and their descendants. If you fast forward past that point, you're going to get to the point where you look at what's known as the Mosaic Covenant, not just the law. Um, and I, I think it's super important as I'm looking at different arguments to be very specific. I don't refer to the Mosaic Covenant as the law in its entirety. And the reason I don't do that is because there are so many people that will say we're under the law. Well, technically we are under a law, right? Because as the church, we are under the law of any commandments, any imperatives given from the apostles to the church. Um, People have developed big theologies about that. If you follow Fruchtenbaum or um, even Andy Woods to, a, to an extent, you'll come to the conclusion that we're under what's known as the law of Christ. Um, I, I just like to summarize that and say anything we're told to do as the church is those are the, them the rules, right? So that's what we have to follow. And some people will call that the law of Christ. So that being said, we're not under what's known as the Mosaic Covenant, which is an if-then conditional covenant between God and his people, Israel. Ethnic Israel, made of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Or their descendants, that's really what I meant. So in any case, if you understand that this covenant is going to happen, you understand the basic building block of the covenant, which is that if you obey my commandments, you will be blessed. If you don't obey my commandments, these are the the curses that will fall upon you as a people. Now, what we've noticed, and there are, there are many of these that we could focus on, but one of the main, I would call it characteristics of the curses side of that is they were promised they were going to be scattered, but not only scattered. If, if I'll put it this way, if their promises that they're going to be scattered, there's also a promise that they're going to be regathered in preparation for judgment And we know that there's a promise at the end of the tribulational period, Matthew 24, that he's going to regather them after said judgment. If you're looking at the chronological organization of that chapter, then we know that they're also going to be regathered for blessing. But that regathering part, again, is completely distinct and separate from the scattering portion. That's what we've been going into a lot. So in order to understand kind of why they have to be in the tribulational period, we have to understand who they were as a people. So why, why was Israel made? We looked at four reasons for Israel's election as a nation, because we like to use the big button terms. Um, Israel was their elect nation of God. They were separated for a purpose. They recorded the revelation of God. They were to basically be the evangelists of God, if you want to use a common term from now, because people came into their city and they were supposed to show exactly who this one true God was. They were a separate economy from every other nation around them. And ultimately, they were to produce the Messiah. The next portion deals with three separate sections of their history. Um, All prophesied, some have come to pass, some will come to pass later. Now, this is incredibly important because Israel was promised that they would fail because that was obvious. Um, especially in the midst of it, if you follow the writings of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel. But there's also a promise that they were going to be judged for that failure within those promises, followed by restoration. So the last few weeks, we've been looking at these three categories. We looked at their failure, 
the fact that they had failed God's law. They had failed the Mosaic covenant to be precise. Um, Were they allowed people from other nations to come in? They wed with other nations. They didn't follow the sacrificial system in many cases. They didn't read the word. They had issues. They were burning their children alive as a sacrifice to false gods. I mean, they had a lot of, you know, interesting things that they were doing that was separate from God's law. As a result, they were judged. They were dispersed in Babylon, to Babylon. They were kicked out of land. If you study that time period, particularly in the book of Ezekiel, it's, it's not really super kid friendly if you follow what's going on in that book. Um, but in any case, what I'm getting at is that was what they, what they did. They failed. Now, if you follow their history past the point of their regathering to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, they failed again. They kept failing and failing and failing because ultimately it's impossible to follow the law. Now, you can still try like, like Daniel did. You can try to follow the law even in the midst of opposition. But ultimately, they didn't even try to an extent. The way they tried to fix that was they tried to build what we would refer to as a hedge around the law. So where God said, don't do A, they would say, we don't want to do A. So not only are we not going to do it, we're going to build rules around it so that we never, ever get under Babylonian captivity again, because that's something they didn't want again. And you see the Pharisees largely coming out of that, as well as the Sadducees. Now... That being said, what we notice is something very particular in the bottom part of Israel's failure. All of the, all of their history moving forward was leading up to the point of the Messiah whom they rejected as a part of that rejection. They were judged. We saw the nation of Israel destroyed or Jerusalem destroyed. Let's be specific in the judgment of AD 66 going into AD 70. Now, the section we left off last time was this idea of Israel's restoration. And we left off in Isaiah 53. So if we could turn back to Isaiah 53, that's where we're going to get started today. Now, just while we're turning, as a reminder, there were a few things that we were noting in in response to this subject of their restoration. The first part is that there are conditions for the king's return. Because what did we look at last? We looked at the fact that there was going to be a rejection of the king and that through the problems of the tribulational period, two thirds of the nation were going to be destroyed and a third of the nation was going to survive through the fire. Now, let's say they did survive. We're we're nearing the end of the tribulational period. What happens before Jesus is able to come back? Well, we get we spent a lot of time looking at those scriptures last week. We looked at the conditions for um, their regathering and the condition for his return, but there are going to be byproducts from this. So let's start reading. Let's just read through, uh, through verse nine. And let's take a look at this. It says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of the parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with Greek, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken 
smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each one has turned his own way. But the Lord has caused iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. He did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off uh, that he was cut off of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. Because again, that is the person that they destroyed. That is the king of God's own choosing, that God had chosen the kingdom to come through. This was that descendant of David. This is that eternal throne, eternal leader who's going to be on the eternal throne for this kingdom to bring it in to actually redeem the nation. They chose to reject him. However, having chosen him, which we looked at in the, that top bullet point last week, we now have other things that come as a result. So if you can move forward to Isaiah chapter 59, that's where we're going to be reading next. Just a couple verses before we go into the next chapter. It says, starting in verse 20, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression and Jacob declares the Lord as for me. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit, which is upon you and my words, which I've put in your mouth shall not depart from your, shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord from now until forever. Because again, he's giving those promises because of their restoration. Now, if you move forward, starting in uh, chapter 61, We'll read through verse 8 and 9. I know this is a little bit of jumping around, but that's also why I don't have it written on different screens. So starting in verse uh, 8 in chapter 61, it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the people. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. This is a reference to the new covenant, which again, when's the new covenant going to find its fulfillment in the people of Israel when they're all saved. That happens at the end of the tribulational period going into the kingdom. That's when they start seeing the blessings that were prophesied about them. Now, moving forward just a little bit farther, we see, or I'm sorry, moving Yeah, moving forward in chapter 64, we're going to read through verse 12. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as the fire kindles the brushwork as the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence, For the days of old, they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry for we sinned. 
we continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf in our iniquities, the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold on you. For you have hidden your face from us, and you have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praise you, has been burnt by fire. And all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you strain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? We see that he doesn't. We see that eventually they are regathered. We see that eventually they do have the Lord. We see that they are regathered to Jerusalem in particular and that they're uh, raised above the nations. If you could turn to Jeremiah, we're going to be picking up on that thought starting in chapter 30, starting in verse 30. It says, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fury or fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. The Lord says, I will also bring them back to the land, which I gave to their forefathers and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard the sound of terror of dread and there is no peace. Ask now and see if, if a male can give birth, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? Why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great and there's none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. That's the verse that we have to think about because ultimately that is what's prophesied. We've prophesied that it is exactly Israel who is going to go through this distress. It is Jacob's distress, but ultimately Jacob finds himself saved from that distress. And that's just kind of what we have to keep in mind. The Old Testament is littered with these promises, not only of, I mean, we, we like to focus on the distress portion. If you um, are looking at a history of Israel from someone who believes in replacement theology, they have a lot to say about Israel's destruction. They have a lot to say about Israel's, the nature of Israel against God. Um, they don't have a lot to say about the restoration, but as you can see, they're Again, this is a summary of what the Bible has to say about that, but there's a lot going on here. There are a lot of promises. We're going to keep reading and we'll end at verse 24 before we shift. It says, um, starting in verse 8, It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Lord, for behold, or, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease. And no one will make him afraid, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, 
But I will chastise you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your wound is incurable and your injury is serious. There is no one to plead your cause, no healing for your soul, no recovery for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you for I've wounded you with the wound of an enemy with the punishment of a cruel one because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Why do you cry out over your injury? Your pain is incurable because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. I've done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you will be devoured and all your adversaries. Every one of them will go into captivity and those who plunder you will be for plunder and all who prey upon you. I will give for prey. For I will restore you to health and will heal you of all your wounds, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, saying, It is Zion. No one cares for her. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwelling places, and the city will be rebuilt on its ruin. And the place will stand on its rightful place. From them will proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them and they will not be diminished. I will also honor, and they will not be insignificant. Their children also will be as formerly, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all their oppressors. Because again, what God is promising is their restoration as a nation. Again, that's not to the exclusion of the things they've done in the past, but the focal point is their restoration as a nation. Because again, how are they going to be restored? This is kind of the point I'm trying to drive home as we're looking at these restoration passages in the midst of their, what, punishment passages. We're looking at the fact that they are going to be restored out of chastisement. Because again, the goal isn't just to beat them into the ground and take the few little ones you forgot to destroy. It is to bring and change their hearts. It's to invoke a heart conditional change in the nation of Israel. And we know that he's going to do that through the tribulational period. Because again, that's the point we're trying to make here. We're not just, I mean, we're looking at the restoration, but if you look at the restoration in the midst of the conditions in which it happens, they get restored because of the events that happen during the tribulational period. Because of the fact that so many of them perish. And more specifically, because they see the Lord's provision through that. Because ultimately he's the one they trust in and he is the one that saves them. And they recognize that, obviously, because they're the believing Israel who is left after basically the rest of Israel is purged. Not a great condition. It would be nice if there were better conditions for that to happen. But we know from history in the past, as well as history future, that these are going to be the conditions of Israel's regathering. So if we could actually turn into chapter 31, we just have a few verses to read in there. Um, Starting in verse 31, it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart, I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man, his neighbor and each man, his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me and the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. 
It says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast all the offspring of Israel. For all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hanel to the corner gate. And the measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to, to the hill of Garib. And then it will turn to Goa and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron and the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be holy to the Lord. And it will not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Now, Again, you could make a passing comment that when people are reading about the new covenant, they stop right before it talks about Israel's particular restoration. But if we're looking at this context, that is the context of the new covenant. Now, the new covenant that was ratified at the blood of Jesus at his death, we're going to find its ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom. Right after the tribulational period where all of these things happen to Israel. Because again, they are the ones God made the covenant with. We're just third-party beneficiaries on the side of the covenant where we are able to get spiritual blessings as a result of that. But again, the, the thing that we need to be looking at is the fact that they as a nation are going to be restored. Physically restored, not just spiritually restored. Because you have to look at both of those aspects as you're looking forward. Because what people do is they will look at the spiritual restoration of Israel transmute the name Israel with the word church and say, well, their spiritual restoration is happening right now as we are the spiritual Israel, right? Because all they have to do is switch a few words around and then they can try to argue for that point, ignoring the fact that Israel has not just been promised spiritual restoration, but also physical restoration in Israel with David literally being risen from the dead to re- to be ruling. And all of these promises that we've looked at in the past And we've looked at in the recent past, because all of these things are prophesied. All of these things will come to fruition. So we just have to kind of keep that in mind. The reason that we're going verse by verse is, first of all, it's better to uh, be navigating our Bibles and creasing the pages in in these chapters. Makes it easier to get to them later when we have the fun family conversations on Thanksgiving. Um. But it's also really important because it shows us just the the breadth of this promise that God has made to Israel. This is why Israel felt like they couldn't be destroyed, mistakenly, again. They, they looked at these promises of restoration, these promises of God providing for them, and they thought they were invincible. Um, God showed them that <laughs> that wasn't the case. But ultimately, these are what we really need to focus on as we're going forward. So let's go to actually a little bit farther in Jeremiah chapter 32. We're going to read a few, few verses towards the end of the chapter. So starting in verse 37, it says, behold, I will gather, gather them out of the lands to which I will have driven them in my anger, in my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. 
that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put them in, I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Because again, that is the promise of their restoration. Now, towards the end of Jeremiah in chapter 50, just reading verses four and five, it says in those days. And at that time declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come both they and the sons of Judah as well. And they will go along weeping as they go. And it will be the Lord, their God, they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction. And they will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant. And it will not be forgotten. Because again, I I can't emphasize this enough. This is the promise of their redemption as a nation. And it is exceptionally Jewish. This is, this is not the church. This has nothing to do with the church. This is a promise made to ethnic Israel. As mad as that may make some people. So if you could turn forward to the book of Ezekiel chapter 11, that's where we're going to be reading from next. Verses 19 through 20. It says, and I will give them one heart. That sounds familiar. And put a new spirit within them. And I will make the heart of stone. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. Moving forward, Ezekiel, let's go to chapter 16. And we're going to be reading verses 60 through 63. These are, we did a lot of long verses. These are going to be our shorties. It says, starting in verse 60, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord so that you will may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I've forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord God declares because again, it is the Lord that is going to be restoring them. This isn't something they're not going to get a heart change and then do it on their own. This is done through the Lord's power at their heart change. Because again, the goal was not just circumcision, but a circumcised heart. That's one of the themes throughout the Old Testament. It says, if you go to Ezekiel chapter 34, starting in verse 25, it says, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the field so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season and they will be showers of blessing. It says in verse 27, also the tree of the field will yield its fruit and the earth will yield its increase and they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I've broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. I mean, these are all promises of Israel's restoration. And these are all things that we, we ought to keep in mind as we're looking through these chapters. I mean, it, it sounds like we're being redundant at this point, but again, This is just the size of this promise given to Israel. So we'll skip forward just a little bit and we'll look at Ezekiel 37 verses 21 through 28. It says, starting in verse 21, say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the sons of Israel 
again, the sons of Israel, from among the nations where they have gone. And I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. And one king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. And they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with all of their transgressions, any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their God. Again, if you read a little bit farther, we read that David, it says in verse 24, my servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant in which your fathers lived and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons, sons forever. And David, my servant will be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Because again, these are the things that are promised. This is what we're looking at. So again, if you, and we spent quite a bit of time focusing on their destruction. We spent a lot of time focusing on what would happen during the tribulational period to them. And that got pretty depressing. If you look at that in isolation to all of these promises about their restoration. Because again, their restoration is the hope. That's the change that God is going to invoke in them for that, uh, during that time period. So again, we're going to look at this in summary for and probably next week before we get into the topic of the church. But the thing that we need to note is that the purpose as it relates to Israel, again, this is just talking about Israel. This isn't talking about the whole world. This isn't talking about the iniquity of the world and the wrath of God. This is just talking about Israel who has also done pretty unspeakably evil things, um, as have we all. But what we're trying to focus on is that he's going to use the tribulational period in order to refine them. He's going to refine the rebels, bring two-thirds of them through the fire. And that's the promise that he's making through these things. So if we turn to the book of Hosea, starting in chapter 6... This is going to be another one of our shorties starting in verse one. It says, come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days and he will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Because again, this restoration is something that is going to happen. If you turn to the book of Joel, chapter 2, this should be a pretty familiar chapter. Starting in verse 28, we'll make our way to 32. It says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your, okay, who's he talking to? He's talking to Israel. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Because again, that's what he's looking at. That's what we're observing as we're looking at history. 
in advance. It says in verse 30, I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Ultimately, that's going to be the condition for, again, the restoration. And I'm not even saying that every believing Israelite is going to make it through the tribulational period. I, I don't think anyone believes that. Some people believe that everybody past a certain point are obviously going to make, because at some point, what does the Bible say? That all Israel will be saved. But obviously before that, not all of them are going to survive. But we do know that in large measure, two thirds of the nation will be brought through the fire. They will literally survive alive through the tribulational period to go into the kingdom. And it's through that one third that God's going to bring forth the promises he made to Israel. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at. We'll skip a few verses because we're, we're running out of time. We didn't even make it through one bullet point. And we'll go to Romans chapter 11, which is a fitting end to this particular topic for the day. So Romans 11, we'll start in verses 25 and go to 27. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is the covenant with them. When I take away their sins, he actually goes forward and he says, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but for the standpoint of God's choice, God's elect choice of them as a nation. And I lost it. Uh, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have sh been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience so that they may show mercy to us all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for he has known for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. If you read earlier in the chapter, it talks about their, the conditions of their restoration. Because again, we get a lot of blessings. God was able to make lemonade out of the lemons that he got when Israel rejected him as the Messiah. But a lot of good things were able to come out of that. God knew those things were going to happen. And that's why God planned in eternity past to make the church. Now we're going to be getting into that a little bit more next week. I, I should, I should stop making promises because we're not making it as far as I thought we were going to. Um, but I guess the one thing that we can em emphasize as we're looking at all these things is just the amount of material relevant to not only the restoration, not only their judgment, not only the conditions in each of those categories, but just the future promises to the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob especially relating to the tribulational period. 
because it's going to provide a specific work that God has planned to bring them to him, to turn them around and redeem the nation. And it is through that redeemed nation that God brought through the fire that had that invoked heart change when they decided to trust in the king of God's own choosing in that Messiah, that God is going to bring forth the promises made in the Abrahamic, all of the unconditional covenants, as well as the blessing side of the Mosaic covenant. So that is going to be one of the large cornerstones of our argument about why Israel and the church are distinct. Now, this is also the sad part. If you're looking at this study in general, when we get arguments like this, where they say, well, Israel and the church, why, why aren't they both? Why are you trying to exclude the church from something we know the Israel is going to have to go through? Well, ultimately that's sad because it's just, it's, it's almost biblical illiteracy um, where people are hyper-focusing on sections of the new Testament to the exclusion of all of the old Testament, where we get all this information. And it's, it's not a little bit. It's not like they missed a hidden verse somewhere that says Israel and the church are distinct and Israel um, is going to be saved through the tribulational period. And there is a future for Israel outside of the context and distinct from all the other nations. We don't need that. We have so much material, but they miss all of that material or reassign that material to the church. So again, it's sad, but we need to be aware of these things in order to answer this particular argument. Yes, it'd be easy to just say the church and Israel are different. That's why we don't have to go through the trip. We could also say the church is redeemed. Israel's not redeemed. So the church doesn't have to go through a time of chastisement in order to become redeemed, in order to be saved, like Israel does as a nation. I mean, we can make those arguments and be absolutely correct in our assertions, but they don't have the wealth of the Old Testament and the they're not comfortable with that information to the point where they're not able to actually make it through and be able to answer those questions. So I, I guess as an admonishment, it'd be very good to have patience with these people, but again, have some discernment. Don't have discernment with patience. I shouldn't say that. Um, it's just something to be aware of as we're moving forward. Like that's the direction we're going, but it's taken us weeks to go through this material. So the hope would be that we'd be pretty comfortable with that material to the point where we could actually be like, all right, well, let's, let's go through what the promises were. Let's go through the covenants. Let's see why Israel has to be there and why the church doesn't. Church is way easier to go through. It'll be a lot more, as I said last time, it'll be a lot more fun. Um, but as far as the Israel stuff, that, I mean, that's, there's so much material because what was one of the purposes of the election of, the election of Israel was to bring forth the word of God. They did. We have them to think. Um, as a result, almost the majority of the Bible is written by ethnic Israel. That being said, there's a lot of the Bible that's also about ethnic Israel, and we can't ignore that to the exclusion of the things that we read about the church. So just some, those are just some final thoughts that we're going to be considering as we move forward going into next week. And one day we will leave this slide. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the promises that you've made, as well as your insistence and willingness to keep all the promises you've ever made. You are absolutely truthful. There is no lie to be found in you. You are the greatest person who has ever existed. And that is the biggest understatement of all time. So Lord, we ask that you be with us. We thank you for your provision. We also thank you for your grace 
um, allowing us to go to this church, allowing us to have Bible teaching, to not have to stretch to find something, not having to read in from another state um, or listen in or listen to recordings or something. We're able to actually go in fellowship of believers on a day-by-day basis and that we don't have to tune into another country because it's illegal in our country. We have these things available to us and that's a tremendous privilege. So I thank you for that, Lord. It's especially looking at the things in, in Canada and all the other countries who are oppressing free speech and oppressing the freedom of identity and freedom of ideas, Lord. Um, what we have is, is not the norm and it's something that I'm grateful for. I ask that you be with us as we're studying Revelation as well. Um, that you give us discernment, that you help us to perceive and understand the things that you would want us to know. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.